Hey, this is Stu at Bitcoin Fi, the cross-section between financial independence and crypto. And today I have a special episode, my very first podcast guest interview with Edward Gorbis. Edward is the creator of Bitcoin School, which is an introductory course on Bitcoin that will help you understand money and Bitcoin at a deeper level. It launches on December 31st. It's on pre-sale right now until the end of the year. And Edward has been a great follow on LinkedIn. He often posts about Bitcoin and also career and life tips. And today's episode, we will continue to build on the basics of Bitcoin and blockchain that I've covered previously on my blog and podcast. But we're going to be going a little bit deeper into some areas, and I hope you enjoy listening to our wide-ranging conversation. All right. Welcome to the show, Edward. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah. Glad to have you on. We started talking on LinkedIn. You had been posting about crypto and then you actually messaged me and we just got to talk in that way. But do you want to give a little bit of your background, whatever you want to share, background with crypto, background with what you do? Yeah, of course. I, I think ultimately in the context of call it crypto or more specifically Bitcoin is that I know every single person has a very different journey and a unique one in terms of how they got into Bitcoin. Obviously, most people around uh, my age don't necessarily say they want to go into Bitcoin or crypto when, when they grow up. But for me, I'm really an engineer turned sales leader and I do have a day job, but I have fallen in love with Bitcoin, what it stands for. Um, I got into it back in 2017. Like many people dipped my toes into the market, partly because of the price action. And at that point decided, hey, it's actually time to learn the underlying principles behind it, really understand blockchain as a whole. And then really even go further and study kind of macro and microeconomics as it relates to money, the evolution of money, why Bitcoin even exists. And like many people, I went down the the crypto rabbit hole uh, ended up consulting for a crypto company back in 2017 and 18. And then through that process, really zoomed in on Bitcoin and realized that there's a lot of noise in the market between ICOs, DAOs, NFTs, Web3, rebranding, all that. And my prime focus right now is just teaching people the fundamentals of Bitcoin, kind of sharing out everything I've been fortunate to learn over the last couple of years through kind of my own stumbles, um, chasing different markets. I'm sure many people have gone through that motion. And now is really an opportunity to share with people and hopefully help educate and onboard more Bitcoin users as we all really strive to adopt this new form of currency. Awesome. That's pretty interesting. So you got in in 2017. That's about the same time as I did. And it sounds like you stayed curious about it, even as the price dropped off. Is that correct? That's right. My underlying philosophy with any sort of true investment is you never sell on the downfall. The reality is I knew it was sound technology. And what's unique about Bitcoin is that it's not just currency, it's technology as well. So I decided to double down and really spend more time learning. Uh, I never recommend people sell off when any market goes down, whether it's kind of the equities markets, let alone the crypto market, unless you fundamentally invest in an altcoin that literally has no purpose, aka Dogecoin or Shibu or anything along that list. 
That's awesome. I wish I had stayed curious because when the price action didn't go in my favor, luckily I didn't sell, but I also just totally lost interest for three years until it happened again this, this year. But, well, hopefully you don't lose interest going forward, regardless of the price action, though, I do believe this next cycle, and we can talk about what having cycles are, but in general, I do believe this next cycle is going to uh, still be volatile, but it will have a different level of price action and price drops, um, probably because of institutional buy-in. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I guess one thing I've kind of heard it likened to is Lyft and Uber, you know, the taxi companies had some pretty good lobbyists and they tried to shut those down. But by the time this was going to Congress or the regulators, the consumers loved it, the convenience of it. And they were kind of too big to take that away. And I think that's how crypto is going to be, especially Bitcoin is what our main focus is. But it's the same thing with those scooters that they dropped off in all the cities across America a couple of years ago, you know, some gave the hard boot and then others said, we're going to work with you. You just have to get permits and stuff. So it is, it is definitely interesting seeing the institutions and, and banks, public companies, everyone getting involved these days. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do believe it's a great analogy though. I will also add on the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and obviously a taxi service like Uber or Lyft or even some of the scooters that you mentioned is that it's fundamentally decentralized in a way where uh, you don't have a central board of directors that has to report to any sort of government entity, although there obviously will be government regulation within the space, but there's no board of directors for Bitcoin. And ultimately the network in itself protects it in the same way that you are comparing the network being uh, the consumers that demand the actual taxi service or the scooters themselves. So I want the focal point to really be around that and not necessarily think about Bitcoin as a company. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we can talk about that. Do you think you could give a brief overview of the origins of Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. So for anybody who's doesn't know kind of the history of Bitcoin. Obviously, most people have heard about Bitcoin as a whole. I've seen the price action, uh, but it's always important to understand history and why it started, where it came from, who started it, how it evolved. All those things really are important to understand the fundamentals of literally anything. Uh, so don't just take anything in life for face value. That's my number one rule. But to answer your question, to shed some light on this, really, Bitcoin was... I'd say born in 2008, specifically on October 31st, when Satoshi Nakamoto, who is really known as a pseudonymous person, group, entity, nobody really knows. I personally suspect it's obviously a cryptographer who really understands economics and had studied it for a while, or this group of people had studied it for a while. But nonetheless, they released a white paper it's about nine to 10 pages. It's pretty simple in terms of explanation, in terms of execution, in terms of use cases, how it would work. But it basically gave birth to this idea of Bitcoin. This was obviously during the financial crisis of 2008 with the mortgage bubble. And for many, many years, people have been upset with the government going through this process of quantitative easing and essentially 
printing more and more money. That's really what you should take away from that. Printing more money, inadvertently raising our debt ceiling, not having us really own our responsibility as a collective nation pay off our debt. So anyway, people were really upset with this and they wanted to form a new form of kind of digital cash, which there'd been other forms of digital cash, but nothing really worked before. So Bitcoin was born, uh, basically the first transaction that ever happened in terms of somebody sending anybody Bitcoin um, was supposedly Satoshi Nakamoto to somebody named Pat Finney, um, who received Bitcoin on January 31st of 2009. So that was the first transaction. They sent 10 Bitcoin, basically proving that Bitcoin in itself can work. People can send money digitally and there doesn't have to be oversight. Obviously, there's a lot of technological implications about how that money is transacted and also how it's settled. Um, those are really important elements of just fundamental transactions between you and I or any other individual or group of people. So that was kind of the birth of it. More and more people caught on through different kind of hacker boards, tech boards. It was really pretty much well known for the first probably two to three years within only kind of the software engineering space. This white paper started to circulate, right? We need mass adoption of Bitcoin as a whole. We're pretty much already there with the 144 million active Bitcoin wallets, but ultimately you needed more and more adoption within the network. As the network grows, the, the network stabilizes, ultimately the price will stabilize, but that was really the first couple of years of Bitcoin. And then ultimately more and more people caught on. There's exchanges started to being built. I think some people may have heard of Mt. Gox, which is a famous exchange that ultimately got hacked back in 2013. In parallel, Coinbase was launched in 2012. So there's a lot of thinking around how do we actually store Bitcoin first, right? Like when we introduce a new form of currency, whether it was seashells, sheep, goats, uh, precious metals, gold, obviously government-backed currencies now. But ultimately, we have to start somewhere. And the starting point was how do you buy? How do you sell? How do you trade? And essentially, that's when exchanges started to happen. People got more into it. Obviously, you and I wish we got in earlier, but the reality is unless you're around these types of communities uh, or truthfully, you spent a lot of time at Stanford where this was being discussed a lot, you didn't have insight into it. And, and then eventually it became a little bit more mainstream as a lot of these exchanges started to gain more traction through more funding. They put marketing dollars into it and then it started to balloon from there and obviously it caught more attention as there was more adoption, which drove the price action which drove more buyers, which further drove the price action. So that's a long-winded way of kind of giving you the short history of, of Bitcoin over the last kind of, kind of 12 to 13 years. Yeah, like you said, it's since 2013 that it's kind of separated itself from the cryptographers and the software developers and gone more to the general public where people may or may not know anything about it. But yeah, pretty interesting how it's grown so much. And at the same time, it's still really early. You mentioned 144 million active Bitcoin wallets. And I know that may not be indicative of how many users there are exactly, but it's probably one of the closest ways we can guess at what that number might be. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and to put that in perspective, there's about 7.8 billion people on the planet. That's roughly 2% of the planet even touching Bitcoin right now. So think about the potential as we gain more and more adoption. The only indicator that we have is the last 12 to 13 years have grown exponentially, regardless of the price drops. If you think about just adoption as a whole of this new currency, it's continuously growing. So the only indicator that we have is that it will continue to grow because people have a level of curiosity. And I think it gets deeper through hearing conversations like this one, then wanting to learn more, then learning even more, then getting into it, then starting to evangelize it themselves. And that's how any network effect really grows. So think about that 144 million as being 2% of the planet adopting a brand new currency that is truly sound money and does not compare to what we've seen and known predominantly throughout our lifetime as being government-backed currencies that obviously are susceptible to failures and pretty much every currency throughout history has failed. So uh, I think some people would argue that gold still certainly has value and it probably has retained the most value out of any currency that has ever existed. But nonetheless, I think Bitcoin as a principle and what was written in the Bitcoin white paper solves for a lot of the inefficiencies that really have never been solved or really intentionally solved in any form of currency. Uh, and there's a purpose behind that. And we could certainly dive deeper if you want. Yeah. So what you're saying is as things get more and more adoption, obviously there appears to still be a lot of upside, but in my mind, it's not all about the denomination in US dollars, the, you know, the actual price. You had a LinkedIn post that I found pretty interesting and it says, Bitcoin is not a trade, it's the exit. Can you elaborate more on what that means? As you touched on the government-backed currencies that are prone to failure, why is Bitcoin the exit from this system and not just a trade to get rich in US dollars? Absolutely. So the number one thing that really implies is that when you go to work or whatever you do in your life to make money, which is then used to buy some sort of product to either survive or to enjoy, you really need to think about how do you protect the purchasing power of the money that you just made? So if you made $1, let's just keep this easy. If you made $1 at work and you wanted to go, I don't know, <laughs> buy a pack of gum, and at that point, the gum costs 99 cents. But if you think about today's government money, when people hear words like inflation and, and what that really implies, well, the reality is if, if we, again, keep this simple, and we know that today, as of December, the current reported inflation consumer price index is around 6.8%. So that means even if you made that $1, call it at the beginning of the year, Today, that pack of gum is, is now costing you about $1 and about seven cents. So what we have to understand is the reason that Bitcoin is the exit is that it really, it has some levels of inflation, but ultimately it is the ultimate hedge against inflation because it is a scarce asset. Again, I'd encourage everybody to spend an hour, maybe an hour and a half reading the Bitcoin white paper to really internalize it 
But what Satoshi Nakamoto really wrote about was the fact that we'll only ever have about 21, not about exactly 21 million Bitcoin in circulation, which will ultimately be released by the year 2140, roughly. There's about 90% of all existing Bitcoin in circulation already out there. So again, the reason Bitcoin is the exit is because it is the ultimate way to protect your purchasing power. Scarce assets do not inflate the same way that government assets ultimately inflate. Right, that makes sense. I'm looking at this tweet that shows the price increases from the CPI. Gas is up 58%. Used cars are up 31%. Gas utilities, 25%. Meat, fish, and eggs are up about 13%. New cars, 11%. But the overall inflation they're saying is 7%. There's some things that the consumer price index doesn't take into account. And I think people are kind of realizing this is not 7%. And there's not just inflation. There's shrinkflation. Have you ever bought a bag of chips? And it seems like it's more full of air than it was before. Maybe before it was 55% air and now it's 60% air or something like that. So there's shrinkflation. And then even there's Another term I heard, it's called skimpflation, where you go to a hotel, but the level of service that you get is way less. So in a way, you're paying the same amount for less. So I think everyone is kind of awakening to all these different forms of inflation. And I think you're right. This is a simplistic idea. I heard this on NPR's Planet Money, but imagine there was an island that had $1,000 on it and all the people there. They just had this $1,000 and they had a 1,000 coconuts, right? So if a plane flies over and drops off another $1,000, there's still the same amount of coconuts. So now all the coconuts are $2. And if you actually look at the amount of debt, the amount of money that has been printed by the US government, it's about 35% of all the money in circulation was created in the last year or so. And that's about how much the stock market has gone up. That's about how much home prices have gone up. That's about how much used cars have gone up, right? So it's, it's almost like the amount that those assets have gone up is commensurate with the money that has been printed, just about. So kind of interesting. That's one simple way I've been looking at inflation. No, you're spot on, which is the true number is definitely not 6.8%. Uh, because it is an average of kind of the overall prices of most consumer goods, but you brought up things within there that are not adequately captured, is what value are you getting in exchange for the current price that you're paying? And the value is certainly not commensurate with what it used to be. And that is a fallacy with the CPI, and ultimately it is a misrepresentation of truly what inflation is today. Right. And you kind of talked about how Bitcoin, the idea of it was born in 2008. Now, admittedly, I have not read the white paper. I've started it a few times. I want to read it over the break, but I really need to. It's high on the to-do list. But it was born in 2008, basically the financial crisis. Whoever built it was probably seeing these flaws in the system and realizing that it was unsustainable. I think the average reserve currency of the world has only been about 104 years and the US dollar has been that for about 99. So 
interesting parallels there with the timing of Bitcoin. Yeah, I certainly believe it was intentional. And Bitcoin wasn't just developed in the span of the financial crisis. I suspect that, again, whoever this individual group of people were, were working on this for a lengthy amount of time. Uh, overall, just this notion of proof of work was certainly developed years before, but I, I think the individuals that worked on this, and I can't imagine it was just one person, but ultimately it definitely took a while for this to develop. I think releasing it during the financial crisis was either genius or coincidental and really worked out well. Yeah. Now, I haven't really talked about this before, and you had mentioned in passing something about securing the network, and you just brought up proof of work as well. I'm wondering if you could touch on how secure the network is, can Bitcoin be hacked, and how proof of work and its energy consumption maybe plays into that? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, we can just go at a high level. Yeah, so I think most importantly, people often hear about Bitcoin. If we zoom out and zoom back in, they hear about Bitcoin, they know it's a currency, they see it has a high value relative to what they are used to, which is the US dollar, right? Let's start there. From there, if you go deeper, you hear about something called blockchain, you ask yourself, what the heck is this? You understand it's a technology, but how does it work? So again, the network, when we talk about Bitcoin and the fact that people hear about mining and proof of work, really all that is to say is that it is how blockchain operates, right? It's as if you and I ask somebody, how does the software operate on your computer, right? People might think, okay, there's some code behind it. Well, essentially proof of work is that code. So the way that blockchain really works is that you need a network to secure it. And the reason I said there's a lot to unpack is we have to think about how current government monies operate, right? It's basically all centralized. You have the Fed that ultimately prints money uh, and puts it out into circulation. And certainly we, we need to regulate it in terms of how much is being released into the public, how it's managed, what our debt is, what our GDP is, et cetera. But Bitcoin is decentralized. There's no board of directors. There's no CEO. There's nobody to, to go complain to. There's no customer support. So ultimately something has to maintain it. And that's when we talk about the network, that's what the blockchain is. And the blockchain is explained in the Bitcoin white paper. Uh, again, it's fairly technical. So I'll try to do a justice in making sure that whoever's listening truly understands how the blockchain works. So again, when Bitcoin was released, it was intentionally released as an open source code. That means literally anybody could go download the code on their computer and operate a node. Again, you need enough processing power on your computer to actually operate that node, but nonetheless, anybody can quote unquote secure the network. So that's a lot of context. And it's really important because ultimately what that means is say you and I download the code and then obviously enough other people. And at minimum, we need six people to really secure a transaction. But the way blockchain works and this notion of blocks is that it's secured through proof of work. So imagine I were to send you, let's say, to make it easy, one Bitcoin. To do so, I send it from my encrypted wallet. It has to be triggered through the network, which essentially you're saying I'm going to send it from 
my alphanumeric code, which is this unsexy way that we've initially been open to this notion of wallets, hopefully eventually becomes this idea of usernames. There's a company that's working on this called Unstoppable Domains. But nonetheless, I send it to you. How does that work? So there's this idea of proof of work. And when the Bitcoin white paper was written, Satoshi Nakamoto basically wrote in that there will be a set of mathematical algorithms that need to be completed via this open source code by at least six members of the network. And they will be rewarded for completing their quote unquote work, which essentially will then further mine new Bitcoin into the network. And that's how they're rewarded. But you basically need to validate the transaction because in today's world with government money and centralized banks, we have to have settlement layers in between you and I sending each other money. It doesn't just go from say Chase Bank to Wells Fargo. There's a lot of intermediaries in play there. The Bitcoin network basically is all of it under one roof and the intermediaries are those miners who are securing the network and completing the proof of work equation. So basically when it's completed, my one Bitcoin will go from my encrypted wallet to being decrypted into the transparent network that then completes these algorithms that essentially repackages that one Bitcoin. They re-encrypt it and send it back to your wallet that I designated from the beginning. So this is all done transparently in a decentralized manner. So as long as Bitcoin is operating on a few computers across the globe, it is impossible to shut down, meaning you would literally have to shut down the internet to shut down Bitcoin. And even so, at this point, so many people have the code offline and so many people have wallets that are known as hard wallets, which basically call it a thumb drive essentially is offline. And if the internet was turned off, you could plug back in, reinstall the code, reoperate the network, and you cannot kill it. That's really the beauty of Bitcoin. That is a very simplistic way of explaining proof of work. There's obviously more nuances there. But ultimately, what you really need to understand is that Bitcoin removes the intermediaries. It makes it cheaper, faster, and more reliable to transact money from one person or one entity to another at any point of the day. Bitcoin operates 24-7. Banks do not. Again, this is going to be more convenient for individuals and especially for businesses that want to settle money a lot faster rather than waiting when banks are open. And there's so many beautiful pieces to Bitcoin as a whole that people still uh, have not learned, partly because of lack of curiosity, part of truly lack of education. But ultimately, there's a lot of these important nuances that exist. And I think it's really, really important that you just get curious and just start learning one piece at a time. It's all complicated because you can't just learn about what Bitcoin is. You can't just learn about what blockchain is. You also have to learn about money and how it works and why it doesn't work and what are the principles of money in order to truly appreciate Bitcoin. I'll pause there for now. Yeah, it really is a rabbit hole. Like you said, things that you don't expect to learn when you get into crypto is you know, macroeconomics, microeconomics. Um, you learn a bit about politics, a little bit about cryptography. There's so many things, but 
I do think with adoption, you mentioned unstoppable domains and this wallet address, it is kind of unruly. It's, it's not super convenient to send money with this long string of characters. Like you said, it's just a randomized string of characters kind of. And unstoppable domains is basically changing it to where I could have a wallet that's stew.crypto or edward.crypto. And I still think we're waiting for a company maybe like the Google or the Amazon or the, the Facebook of crypto to come in and make it really user-friendly, you know, just something that's going to bring mainstream adoption even further, but unstoppable is definitely one to watch and they've got a pretty good podcast as well. Yeah, absolutely. Unstoppable has a really good team in terms of what they're building, how they're doing it, what they're thinking about, but I think most people know that when they log into their bank, again, Chase, Bank of America, doesn't matter what it is, that they have a username. In today's world, especially if you, even now, if you're in any sort of crypto wallet, whether it be Bitcoin or anything else, you're still using this set of kind of 26 alphanumeric keys to really store that quote unquote username, which gets scary for people because if you mistype one number, you can essentially send your money into a vacuum or to a random stranger. Fortunately, something simple called copy paste (laughs) works really well and ultimately protects you from that. But again, the industry as a whole is very, very nascent. A lot of people compare it to the early days of the internet and the adoption there and either the lack of understanding or the lack of belief that a system like that could work. And for a global system to be evangelized in a short period of time is very, very difficult. But overall, I think Coinbase did a really good job in their most recent earnings report, which was Q3 2021. They had a chart in there that they shared around how on a logarithmic scale, the adoption of Bitcoin compares to the adoption of the internet. And it's actually pretty similar in terms of the overall user base. So it's a fairly good assessment. Obviously it's empirical, but nonetheless, it's a good kind of comparison of how we're trending, what the adoption will ultimately look like. What it does to the US dollar and other major currencies still up for debate. And um, I think there's obviously predictions, but I think Bitcoin is here to stay and adoption's only going to continue. Yeah. I've seen some of these charts that basically are saying with Bitcoin, it's like the same adoption as the internet in 1997. And that is pre-Google. That's really before the internet came into its own and took off and was easily accessible and easily accessed and used. So pretty interesting there. Here's a question for you. Do you consider yourself a Bitcoin maximalist? Do you only care about Bitcoin? Do you care about Ethereum or other altcoins? I don't consider myself a maximalist on anything, to be honest, short of just the high level value that I have is kind of live and let live. Uh, And that's the only place I'll be a maximalist. But beyond that, as it relates to Bitcoin, I personally care a lot about it and try to teach people the fundamentals around it because I do believe it is the best on-ramp for people. It is the best way to truly understand the technology, understand money, and then go down the rabbit hole of all these other ideas that exist, whether it be DAOs, NFTs, how they're supported by different 
tokens, whether it be Ethereum or Solano and what platforms mean and uh, different tokenomics, et cetera. So I do genuinely really appreciate what other tokens try to do. What I struggle with them and why I don't always want to agree with them is if you truly believe in Bitcoin and appreciate the underlying principle of decentralization and no centralized ownership, is that all of these other tokens, Ethereum plus everything else, which are known as altcoins, all have some centralized players basically creating everything and still managing it. Yes, some centralized players created Bitcoin, but essentially it's being managed by the network now, which is what we just discussed. And it's not being managed by a central group of people. Even Ethereum is managed by the Ethereum Foundation and by Vitalik Buterin, who is the founder of Ethereum. He's still heavily involved in basically rolling out the roadmap for how Ethereum protocols are going to be scaled over time. So what I appreciate with them is this idea of building out smart contracts, which is a way for people to digitize any sort of agreement that they have today. Let's imagine you're buying a home and obviously you have to go through escrow. Well, imagine that escrow process can be written on a blockchain. It's verified by the network and nobody has to be involved there. The transaction would be a lot cheaper and be a lot faster and it'd be a lot safer. So I do believe that these ideas around smart contracts have a place to stay. I really want to see them grow and expand and really have real world utility. Today, we don't have too much utility beyond buying, holding, trading. Even now lending is one of those prominent things that we've seen on the market. There's other companies doing good things, which is giving people cash back rewards and in Bitcoin, a company called Lolly, another one being Fold, which enables people to buy gift cards and receive pretty substantial kind of cash back in Bitcoin in specific denominations. But ultimately, Everything else beyond Bitcoin doesn't actually have that much real world utility. I know a lot of people will argue that. And again, being in the space since 2017, seeing the hype of the recent kind of ICO <laughs> hype, which is initial coin offerings, which honestly aren't super different from what we're seeing today with how DAOs are being formed, but essentially it's a form of rebranding. Long-winded way of saying, yes, there's a lot of space for us to grow, right? If we're really equating it to the internet of 1997, there's going to be a lot of new ideas that ultimately fall apart. And there's going to be other ideas that perform exceptionally well, or some new players are going to come about and just completely disrupt the space and create something new on top of the system. So Bitcoin is really going to enable faster, cheaper, safer transactions, and really make the world a little bit more equitable as it relates to finance. Awesome. Yeah. And like you said, with all these altcoins, there is some centralized nature. I mean, even Solana went down. I mean, the Bitcoin network has never gone down. It's very decentralized. Solana going down says that there's some significant level of centralization. And you mentioned Ethereum with Vitalik Buterin laying out this roadmap. I think one of the best things, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was or whoever that group of people was, the best thing they could have done to validate Bitcoin was to walk away. And that's what they did. And the network has governed itself 
ever since. And that's pretty, pretty amazing in my mind. Absolutely. And the beautiful thing is people have built what is now known as kind of the layer two protocol or the lightning network, which if you think about it in a very simplistic way, yes, it's more code, but it's basically underlying rails that allow Bitcoin transactions to happen on this new network. It is managed within the network itself, but it was created past the origination of Bitcoin itself. But nonetheless, it still operates. Bitcoin has never gone down. I do think Ethereum personally is stronger than Solano, partly because it's managed by foundation versus a centralized group of people. And certainly people always want to get on board with the next token that is going to make them a lot of money. And my problem with the crypto industry as a whole right now is there's more focus on returns than there is around understanding that we're literally going through a currency revolution and that it's happening in a digital space. And obviously it's different than what people used to see, but nonetheless, we're going through this massive transformation right now and it's happening before our eyes and people are focusing on making insane returns. And obviously some people have and, and good for them, but they're really just gambling. They're not really appreciating what Bitcoin is and what it will be. I totally agree. Yeah. I think most altcoins, Sure, you can make a lot, you can lose a lot, but most of them are a distraction in my mind. And I mean, I still think that there's a strong place for Ethereum and some of these other smart contract things, but I believe in the Taproot upgrade that happened a couple of weeks ago that smart contracts are now possible on Bitcoin and it's still very early for that. So I wonder how much that's going to get developed. Hopefully it gets a lot of stuff moving that way. Absolutely. And again, people have probably heard of DeFi at this point. I do believe DeFi will be enabled on these next layer protocols within Bitcoin as well. It's just going to take more time for the mechanics behind it to really work. But ultimately, people are going to be able to earn high yield, going to be able to lend and essentially transact entirely on the Bitcoin network. So this might be too personal of a question, but I'll ask it anyway. Have you ever gotten a crypto backed loan or a crypto, a Bitcoin collateralized loan? I have not, uh, not yet at least, but again, depending on how Bitcoin in terms of purchasing power compares to the price of the dollar, I think eventually when I buy my next home, uh, that might be a necessity in terms of getting that type of loan. But I will admit that I do benefit from some of the high yields that are out there currently for Bitcoin. Yeah, same here. One day, I'd just like to go through it probably on Celsius just to see how quick and easy it is. And I probably wouldn't do anything with it. I'd probably just pay it back off. But I'm <laughs> definitely curious about it. I had a few rapid fire questions. What are you most excited about in the crypto space overall? I'm truly most excited about seeing the next 144 million users come into the space because when we can double in a shorter period of time, there's going to be less conversation about, is this possible? Is it here to stay? But really about, okay, how do we create a lot more utility and a lot more function out of this quicker? So the more users we get into the space, understanding what Bitcoin is, how it operates, the better it is for everyone that's currently in the space, as well as society as a whole.
Awesome. Yeah, I agree that the more adoption there is, there's going to be more built out and more utility out there on the Bitcoin network. So I'm curious, who do you look to? Who do you go to to learn more about Bitcoin and crypto? It's a great question because really you're not going to mainstream news networks, publications to get all this information. It's still very early in the space and you have kind of these evangelists who are, are kind of first time movers. But for me, some of the most prominent people that I'm fortunate to follow and learn from and kind of interact with is Anthony Pompliano. Uh, Dan Held's another one. Pompliano has done a lot within the Bitcoin space. He obviously has a podcast, newsletter, fund, et cetera. Uh, and he is just a wealth of knowledge and interacts and has relationships with a lot of people within the space. So it's kind of first access to the knowledge that's in their brain at a more technical level. Dan Held, another very smart individual, has been within the space since 2013, has seen kind of the roller coasters in multiple different cycles. So his composure and demeanor really keeps me at bay in terms of how things evolve, why they evolve. And, and again, it's just humbling to see people that have been around the space for so long and share so much valuable information. There's obviously a lot of other people that I learned from that either have podcasts, publications on forums, such as Substack. Obviously, the majority of the crypto community hangs out on Twitter. Uh, but there's a lot to learn. And I think if you're looking to go learn, Twitter is a great space. Obviously, I am trying to really change the conversation on LinkedIn and work through that angle alongside Dan Held, who's doing the same, because there's very little education on the LinkedIn network, and there's over 700 million users there. And I think it's a great opportunity to tap into. Yeah, I've been surprised by all the crypto stuff I started seeing on, on LinkedIn, this, just the more people I follow talking about it, it's getting to be where it's most of my LinkedIn feed now. That's great. And hopefully we will have just as much education going out there on LinkedIn as we do on Twitter right now. What do you think about plan B and his stock to flow model? Is that something that you pay attention to? I certainly follow plan B. I appreciate the work that he does in trying to build out. Again, keep in mind, anyone that creates any sort of model, stock the flow, there's other comparative analytics about how Bitcoin has trended over time is really all empirical, which means it's based on an accumulation of data and a forecast. And obviously that's the best thing we have. Nobody in any market. I don't care if it's the equities market, bonds, treasuries, crypto can never predict what the price will be. But I think the stock to flow ratio, and again, stock to flow is something that I actually go through in my course and explain in detail what that means and what it looks like. But the stock to flow model does a fairly decent job of predicting things based on the Bitcoin halving cycles and the overall amount of Bitcoin in circulation in those moments in time. But that being said, if you look at the model, it's put out in a very pretty format because it's all on a logarithmic scale. So even though everything looks like it's going up and to the right with minimal oscillation, it's not a perfect depiction of how Bitcoin really has trended over the years. And it 
it doesn't do people justice who are getting into it early on. It's important to really understand what a stock and flow and what does that ratio really mean? But ultimately it's just empirical. And I think plan B who again is also a person that doesn't want to disclose their name because they just want to put out important information out there has multiple models that he follows and he, he will never tell any individual to blindly follow his models or believe that it is the only true answer out there for where Bitcoin might head or when it might potentially hit some sort of price target. Yeah, that makes sense. So the Fed just finished meeting up and it's funny, they say that they're going to taper back some of their asset purchases and they're forecasting three rate hikes in 2022. And it's kind of funny to me, we've talked about Bitcoin as the ultimate inflation hedge. It seems to me that Bitcoin is kind of confused at times, whether it's going to act like a stock or an equity or whether it's going to act like a store value traditionally like gold. It seems like it sometimes doesn't know how to act. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it was just a random observation. But you would think that with the inflation rate going high, that Bitcoin would be also going up. But at the same time, it's kind of acting like stocks and it's scared that the Fed is getting more hawkish instead of dovish. So there's a couple of factors in there to really consider. One, it's who is holding on to the money and really moving the Bitcoin market right now. And especially over the last say 18 months, most of it was driven by institutional players that have large chunks of money that they can throw into the markets. They're somewhat sitting on the sidelines to really understand the entire macro picture, right? Bitcoin is just one part of the world. The equities markets have a exponential amount of trillions of dollars in there, more than the value of the current Bitcoin market. So they're still waiting to see what's going to happen. But ultimately, my suspicion is the more smart institutional money that understands what Bitcoin is will move a vast amount of its funds into Bitcoin because it's really a store of value. It's definitely not a security. It's not a bond. It might eventually become a global index and be more important than the S&P 500. Again, this is 10 to 50 years from now, and it's a wide range in terms of a scale, but it could be the greatest indicator of of overall performance of the markets and just GDP as a whole globally. But nonetheless, it's a store of value because again, we had talked about purchasing power earlier and it protects your purchasing power because it meets really the five principles of, of sound money as a whole. And the US backed currencies, AKA the US dollar, which is always susceptible to inflation has never been able to protect people's purchasing power especially since we went off the gold standard in 1971. But that to be said, I want people to really, really go out from this conversation thinking about why is Bitcoin a store of value versus a security? Yeah, good thoughts. I like it. Do you have any final words of advice for those getting into crypto? Allow yourself to be curious and inquisitive around what this space is. It's okay if you decide not to invest, but don't do yourself a disservice and be a puppet and repeat what somebody else is saying just because somebody called it a Ponzi scheme or that it can never work or that this thing will go to zero. Give yourself the opportunity to just learn. Really have an open mind. 
go through the process of learning. And again, if you're interested to put in a selfish plug, I am uh, building out what's called Bitcoin School, which is a very simple course to teach people the fundamentals and go a little bit deeper than what we just discussed today and really break things down in a way that took me a while to really understand and really package it up for individuals in a way that is digestible and hopefully will get them to really understand the value of Bitcoin as a whole. Yeah, I was going to have you plug your course anyway, and it is on pre-sale until December 31st, right? That's right. So my goal is not to get rich off this course. My goal genuinely is just to educate people on, and I'm keeping it sub $100 right now. Awesome. Yeah, we will definitely link that. And how, how long is the course, by the way? So my goal is to keep it under two hours total. So if you really want, you could watch all the videos in one day. I go through the history of money, the basics of blockchain, the basics of Bitcoin, really go through the use cases of Bitcoin today. And then how do you start buying, holding, potentially investing in different kind of lending platforms where you can earn high yield as well. So the course will be broken down into different sections and no more than two hours in total. Yeah, that sounds like something people could easily do over the break. I know for me, I mean, I bought a course and it was great. It was from Spencer Montgomery. And what you do get is a Slack group and some coaching. I don't know if, if you have anything like that, but you know, the course I paid was over $1,000. I think it's over 2000 now. Totally worth it, whether you buy that course or this course, because it really condenses a lot of the key principles, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but whatever is in your course can be learned elsewhere. The problem is, is it might take you months and months of digging and stumbling around to figure out what's actually pertinent, what matters, right? There's a lot of scams in crypto. There's a lot of different takes and opinions, and not all of it's true and not all of it's you know, relevant. Absolutely. I think I've spent truthfully north of two to 3,000 hours over the last four years. And I'm not embellishing in terms of just learning different content, whether it be through YouTube, podcasts, conversations, going to conferences, going to meetups. And there's a lot of noise out there because somebody will grab you and tell you, this is the next coin. This is why it works. This is why you should look at Bitcoin here or, or purchase Bitcoin on this network. And it really rubbed me the wrong way that there is no centralized place to just really condense all this information into the most simplified manner possible. And I'm glad to hear there's other people putting out courses as well. At the end of the day, I know that people who buy courses will ultimately buy multiple courses because they either want reaffirmation that these courses make sense for them uh, or this information makes sense to them and they just want to validate that information as a whole. So I know that the people who are committed to learning this information will see that spending a hundred, two hundred, a thousand dollars on a course is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things in terms of the value that they're getting, because rather than spending thousands of hours, they can condense into just a few and really learn the basic principles that are so, so important to buying into the idea of Bitcoin, what it is, why it works, and, and hopefully really be a proponent of it going forward. That's my greatest hope. So my course, at least for now, doesn't have a Slack community because I really just want people to understand the basic principles. But ultimately, we'll see how things trend. I'm just having fun with it right now and really trying to help people understand the basics. Yeah, it definitely seems to me 
what I would say the best way for new people to learn is one, just to buy $100 of Bitcoin. Because if you buy it, if you own it, you actually have some skin in the game, you have a stake in it, you're going to be motivated to learn about it. And then two, for $97 on presale, this course in two hours, if you could know all the basics that you need to know, it seems like a no-brainer. I would say that those are the probably the two easiest ways just to, to get into Bitcoin. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate the, the plug, but nonetheless, there, there's a lot of resources out there. Um, I think whether it's my course or another one, one of the best books that I'd ever recommend that really helped me understand a lot of it uh, is called The Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amous. Uh, he's an economist uh, who has studied, obviously, currencies and really understands the, the basic principles of money as well. So I highly, highly recommend that book as well as a starting place. I just started it. I'm in the first chapter and it's been pretty cool so far. Love hearing that. All right. That was our conversation and I hope you enjoyed it. Just a few things to note. This show is not financial advice. It is for entertainment purposes only. Investing in crypto has large two-sided risks. Please do your own research before investing in crypto. Also, I do have a link to his course that will get you an additional $10 off. You can find it in the show notes. And right now, it's on pre-sale until December 31st for $97. And after it is live, it goes to $147. So with the link or the promo code BitcoinFi, BitcoinFI, the code is just the name of my blog and podcast, you can get his course through me for $87 pre-sale or 137 after it goes live at the new year. Now, I mentioned the other course that I had bought from Spencer Montgomery and you went to crypto. It is substantially more expensive, and the course itself is four hours, about twice as long, twice as much content as what Edward's course will be. The difference is that Spencer's course comes with six months of weekly calls and one-on-one coaching on those calls, and a Slack group where you can pose questions and learn from others' questions. I would say Spencer's course is best for those that have substantial assets that they want to deploy into Bitcoin, and also for people with more complex financial strategies and situations, you can get that one-on-one coaching to work through those issues. But for most people, Edward has a much more affordable course where you can learn the basics as you start stacking some small amounts of Bitcoin. I think both serve a great purpose. I'm excited to go through Edward's course once it launches and see how it compares, but my suspicion is it's going to be a pretty high value for the price point, especially for people new to Bitcoin. Also note that I have no affiliates and no kickbacks for Edward's course. I am simply promoting it for him because I enjoy his content and I think it's going to be helpful to many people. I do want to disclose that for anyone that goes and gets the Uinta Crypto course from Spencer, and lets them know that I sent them to that course, I do get a referral bonus. For the apps that I have linked in the show notes, those are mutually beneficial referral links. And I do ask if you are going to sign up for something, please try to use my link and that will help keep the show running. Finally, just want to do a quick reminder about my December giveaway for podcast reviews. If you leave me a review and email me a screenshot of it and let me know your username. You will be entered into a drawing to get $100 in Bitcoin or Ethereum. And maybe 
maybe I'll sweeten the deal and throw in Edward's course with that. So just let me know if you happen to leave a review. And with that, remember that financial independence is doable, and I'll be back with you soon.